0: Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Well, let's turn to our text this morning. It's at the end of Mark chapter 3. We're coming now to the conclusion of the first story. If you've been following this, Mark inserts a story into the middle of a story. And we finished the middle story last week. But this initial story was kind of broken in half by the one in the middle. And I want us to look at the conclusion. So you remember the first story began with Jesus in a crowded house. And his family shows up at the door. And they've come to perform some sort of intervention. They think Jesus has gone off the deep end. And how Mary got swept up in this is kind of remarkable, but it brings out something for those who want to venerate her and think she's the perfect. No, Mary was flawed. And this is an instance of that she was part of this going along with her other children who wanted to intervene and and deliver Jesus, perhaps from what they thought was uh, some danger being posed by the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities. Maybe it was to preserve the, the for the namesake of the family. Whatever. This is how it begins. But we don't know how that story concludes until this text. Verse 31. And his mother... Notice she's there. This is his family. And his mother and his brothers came standing outside, that is, outside this crowded house, and they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brothers? What a question. And looking about at those who sat around him he said here are my mother and my brothers whoever does the will of God he is my brother and notice and sister and mother this is an amazing text and we want to look at it this morning First of all, very simply, the opening words, I want us to talk for a moment about Jesus' family, his earthly family. So just the first part of verse 31 is my first point, Jesus' family, his earthly family, and his mother and his brothers came. Stop right there. So we know his mother, Mary. And his brothers, his brothers, he had four siblings. And they're named for us over in the sixth chapter, which we'll come to in later studies. Um, Four of his brothers are named. And probably this is all of them, otherwise they would have all been there. Two, actually, now his brothers were all unbelievers to begin with. None of them believed in him. Everything changed after the resurrection. Two of them wrote two New Testament books. This is interesting. The book of James was written by his brother James, and the book of Jude was written by his other brother. And Jude actually says he's the brother of James in his opening part of that epistle. So we know this is James and Jude, and also Joses is another brother and Simon. There's this, and it adds, Mark 6, 3 adds, and his sisters. That means at least two sisters, a plural. We don't know how many he had. Maybe it was more than two, but it's plural, so more than one. So Jesus had at least six siblings. Now the word used for brothers, his mother and his brothers, is the plural adelphoi, Which according to BDAG, those of you who've listened to Eugene, we know the importance of BDAG. This is a a very important Greek lexicon that gives us the latest, most up-to-date information on the original language of the New Testament. I happen to have it. I paid almost $100 for this book. BDAG says that Adelphi, the plural form of the masculine word for siblings can include sisters as well as brothers, when it's in the plural. So it's very possible that that we're to read that, and his mother and his brothers and sisters showed up at the house. So we have his mother, and we have four brothers, and at least two sisters. So this is a group of seven people that are there. So I just want you to ponder that for a moment. Notice that the Lord Jesus Christ does not say anything about Father. Do you catch that? That's probably true because it's very likely that Joseph has died. Because he's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, in the Gospels, other than at the beginning of Jesus' birth. We know he was alive when Jesus was 12, when they had to go back to the temple to find him at 12 years of age. Joseph was there then, and Joseph trained Jesus in his profession, he was a builder not necessarily a carpenter the word means a builder, could have been in wood, could have been with stone I'm going to make a case when we come to chapter 6 that Jesus was primarily a stonemason not a carpenter Yeah, I'll tell you why I make that case so Here's the point: Jesus is the firstborn of a family of at least seven children, including himself. So just think of that: he grew up in a home with all these brothers and sisters. No, there, there was everything that was ordinary and normal about his upbringing. Him being the incarnate Son of God, remember who he is. He came into this world without an earthly father. Joseph was not Jesus' father. We don't know what Jesus called Joseph because there's no record. Did he call him Abba? Did he call him Dad? Well, there's no interaction in the New Testament of Jesus' interaction with his earthly fathers. We're not sure. However, Jesus says in Matthew 23 to call no man father on the earth. or one is your Father even your father in heaven. So the fact that he doesn't mention fathers perhaps is due to a couple of reasons. Joseph having passed away, and also Jesus' father was the father, the heavenly father, and he's our father. So there's something unique about the fact he does not say father here in the family. One is your father. This is your father, the father of heaven. So he grew up in this home, had all the typical experience of family life that we all go through. Just remember that about the Lord Jesus Christ. His incarnation did not shield him from normal, ordinary human experience. Okay. Secondly now, let's go on and talk about that Jesus' family now comes to the house. This is point number two. They've come to intervene in Jesus' best interest, they think. Because that's what we read back in verse 20 and 21. that When his family heard what he was doing, they, they went there to seize him. We're not to take that in that they've come to hurt him. They've come to step in. To a situation seemingly using a little force with him. That word is pretty strong. Seize. That's the word arrest. They've come to somehow get him out of a situation that they think he's probably put himself in inadvertently and uh, he may be in danger. So they've come in Jesus' best interest. Verse 31, B, that is the second part of verse 31. Whenever I use A and B like that, I'm talking about 31, the first part of the verse. B being the second part of the verse. This is how we divide up a verse when we're trying to make a point. Through verse 32, they've come to intervene. Now, note a couple of interesting things here. Notice that his family is standing outside. And it says it twice in this little couplet of verses. They're standing outside. They send somebody into the house to tell Jesus. So they're not trying to push their way in. They may not even be interested in going inside to hear him. That kind of says Something. There's some disconnect here between Jesus and his family. They may be a little estranged, actually, especially from his siblings. And the fact that they say that he's out of his mind, verse 21, going back to the beginning of the story, imagine this is how they're thinking of him he's lost his marbles. He's taken leave of his senses, as some would say, in a very uh, funny way. So, his family is on the outside, twice, it says, while, now notice, the crowd includes his disciples, there and there, they're part of the crowd, they're never separated from him. They're, they are with him. They're with the Lord Jesus. But then all these other people that are complete strangers, they're on the inside sitting around him. The word means that they were sitting in a circle. So Jesus is in the center. What do you, what do you think he's doing? He's not chit-chatting with them. Most likely he's teaching them. He's giving them instructions. But his family is on the outside. This this scene is kind of the opposite of what you would normally expect. What you would normally expect is the family is on the inside. You're in in the house with your family. Strangers and the crowds are outside. This is the normal way of of a scene like this. It's reversed. Because it's emphasizing this this detachment between Jesus and his family and his family's detachment from his followers. In other words, they're, they're not on board. They don't have any understanding of his mission. This is what I'm trying to say. They don't have any grasp of what his business is in this world. They just think he's, he's lost it at this point. What is he doing? What is he, who does he think he is? His family, they're not interested in uh, hearing him. They're content to stand on the outside and make this request of him. Notice they sent, they called him, they're seeking you, and so on. Uh, the family is um, kind of trying to control him. I think, here, somewhat. They have some claim upon him, upon his time, who he is. Hey, we're family. Listen to us. Comply with our request here. And Mary being swept up in this is really odd. So there were a couple other occasions when Mary made the mistake of trying to control Jesus. Can you think of when they were? Well, when he was 12 years old, she and Joseph went back and they were trying to tell Jesus as a 12-year-old, which tells me at 12 years of age, he already understood who he was and that he was in this world on a mission. He had business to take care of, his father's business. So when they asked him, don't you know your father and I have been looking for you? And she was talking like this to him. And he says, don't you know that I had to be about my father's business? What was he doing? He was in the temple and he was having a theological discussion with the religious authorities, the teachers in the temple. This is a 12-year-old. And they were amazed at at his answers and his questions. So they tried to control him then, and then I think of Luke, uh, John chapter 2, when Mary told Jesus at the wedding of Cana in Galilee that they ran out of wine. Remember that? And she's trying to manipulate him. Then, when she tells him this, he understood exactly what she was suggesting. Do something about it. They're out of wine. This is an embarrassment for the groom especially. And he said uh, to her, he said, woman, my time has not yet come. What have I to do with you? Now, it sounds very, uh, you know, it sounds unkind the way he spoke to her, but actually it wasn't. It wasn't unkind, but he was reminding Mary that she's not in control of him. His purpose in this world transcended his relationship to her. She was not in a place to control him and tell him what to do. And this is another instance in our text today that the family was trying to butt in to his business, trying to control him. And he's going to set the record straight. He's going to explain things more clearly. So, again, they don't really have a grasp of Jesus' mission. Yet, Mary will. Mary comes to an understanding eventually, of course. But I I think this uh, information is given to us to help us to understand that Mary uh, was not a perfect person, knowing that she would be venerated later in church history. That could be one of the reasons for it. Now, thirdly, notice in the last three verses, 33 to 35, Jesus' real and true family. So this, this intrusion of his family into what he was doing in this home gives him an opportunity for teaching. And he takes advantage of it, and he's now going to explain who his true family is. So he, he poses this question, and he said to them, who are my mother and my brothers? What a question. Who, who is my real family? And then he looks around at those who were sitting in a circle around him, and he said, this is my mother and my brothers. And, he adds, and whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So let's, let's look at this more, a little closer. So note a few things. First of all, I want to say that Jesus did not reject his family in these words. Don't read that into it. He didn't reject his earthly family. He loved his mother, he loved his brothers and sisters. There's no rejection there. Brother, he's just going to bring out something of who is closest to him. And some of you will be be able to identify with what I'm going to say. So that's the first thing. The Lord Jesus did not dislike his family or anything like that. But what, he's, what we're taught here by him is that the blood ties, the family relationships that exist because of the, our birth and so on, they're not as close to Jesus as the relationship that he has with those who are believers. I've had a few mentors in my life in the past... And I can say that those men that I was very close to, I was closer to them than my own father. Really. Yet there was no blood tie there. So that's, that's an important thing that he says here, that Jesus is closer to his followers than his own unbelieving family. So those sitting around him were, we could say, were disciples of of some level, many of them believing in him, that they really are now, Jesus says, his his true family. Now I want to ask, how does a person then enter into the family of the lord jesus christ that that should be something that we want to know how do we become a member of his family so he would say of me that i'm his brother well i, I was thinking what what where would i go in the new testament just nail this down so it'd be really clear for you and then i thought okay john one john one John tells us in the opening of his uh, gospel that Jesus came, into, came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. So John is speaking of the reception of the nation of Israel toward him. They basically, for the most part, rejected him. Remember, at the end of Jesus' ministry, there was only 120 people in Jerusalem that composed the church. After three years of ministry and miracles, dying and raising, rising from the dead, Jesus only had 120 followers. They composed the church. Acts chapter 1. Not many. But John tells us, he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But, next verse, John 1.12. But as many as received him, to those God gave the authority to become the children of God, even to those that believe on His name. This is why preachers and the church talks about receiving. You've heard this language. Receive Christ. Where do, you know, this, this, it comes right out of the Word of God. To receive Him. Now, somebody that is roman catholic would say that they receive christ every time that they go to mass and what they mean by that is that they receive christ in the elements of the lord's supper this is their understanding of receiving christ but that's not what john one is talking about it's not going through a ritual to receive jesus this is this is something that happens in one's heart this is a an unseen thing. It's nothing that I do physically. Raising your hand is not receiving Christ. Walking forward in a church and praying a prayer with somebody is not receiving Christ necessarily. One receives Christ when he becomes a believer in Jesus, when he trusts Jesus for his salvation when he rests in his finished work on the cross as his hope of eternal life. This is where God wants to bring us to a place of putting all of our hope, all of our trust in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Putting aside all ritual, all the things that we think are going to give us a boost and give us some merit with God, those are the things that get in the way. Put those aside. That's not what is going to recommend you to Christ. The one thing you want is Him and Him alone. Give me Jesus. As Billy Graham's daughter wrote a book by that title. Give me Jesus. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need anything else. There's one, man, there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. This is Paul. First Timothy 2.5 We need one mediator. He is the priest. He's the one that's in between God and sinful man. We have to go through him in order to come before God and have a relationship to God. So receive Christ by faith, trusting in him alone for salvation. At that moment, we become God's children. That means you're in the family. Now you're, in the, now you're a member of the family. Now you belong to my brothers and my sisters, according to Jesus. Now Jesus adds, after saying, looking around and saying, here's my brother, and my, my mother, and my brothers. Notice what he adds in verse 35. This is really important now. How do we know... If we are his brothers and his sister, what's the test? What's the all, what is the family feature that all the family members have in common? Okay, this is what we're looking at here. No, it's not physical. We all look different to Jesus. He's made us all different in physical appearance. But yet, there is a characteristic, there is a family trait a family feature of all the members of Jesus' family, his spiritual family. And he explains who it it is, what it is right here. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Here it is here. Whoever does... The will of God. Now, what is the will of God? Well, Mark chapter 1 has told us really the, where it all begins. The will of God is to repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1.15 is what Jesus was preaching. The first thing he was preaching to his followers was to believe and to repent. This this goes hand in hand with receiving Christ. Don't be confused by this. Don't don't stumble over this. Faith and repentance are always found, not always found together, but the one implies the other. They are different, they're not the same thing. These are the first evidences of conversion. When When I'm turning from going in this direction to this direction, I'm converting. I'm changing. I'm turning around. How do I know that I'm doing that? Well, it's faith, believing, and repenting. Repenting is turning from sin, turning from those things in my life that are not in agreement with the will of God, and trusting in Christ alone. That's the first thing. And then He calls us to be His followers. This is here's the will of God expressed to us right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. Here's the will of God. But I want to bring out the importance of doing the will of God with a reminder of a few texts of Scripture. Matthew 7:21, Jesus said in the conclusion of his sermon on the mount, as he draws that great sermon to a conclusion, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, there it is there. The importance of doing the will of God. In other words, our eternity, where we are going to be in eternity, turns on this point right here. This is the importance of it, of doing the will of God. Here's another interesting one. This is from Luke's Gospel. There was a a woman in the crowd. She's not named, but as she was listening to Jesus and seeing His works, she just kind of blurts out, Blessed is the womb that bore you. And Jesus had a little reply to that. He said, Rather, blessed is he that does the Word of God. That obeys the word of God. This is how Jesus replied to that. That's the person that's blessed. The person that obeys. That does God's word. Who hears the word of God and keeps it. That's what he said. And then one other text from 1 John. John's first letter. He said the world is passing away and all of its desires. Boy is that true. Don't make the mistake of thinking that everything is permanent now. It's just going to go on forever and ever and ever. No, there's a last day coming. There's a final day to human history. When when the great consummation at the end of the ages comes and Jesus comes in great power and glory, the second advent, for he's coming again, John says the world is passing away and its lusts, its desires. But whosoever does the will of God abides forever. 1 John two seventeen. So I bring up those verses to just bring out the importance of this statement of Jesus. This is the family trait. Well, how do I know if I, if I do the will of God? Well, it's real simple to test yourself. Is your supreme desire in life to please Jesus Christ? That's how you know whether or not you're on track of doing the will of God. Just ask yourself that. Who do I really want to please in my life? Until we are Christ-centered and we've received him and he is Lord and Savior of our life... My number one person I want to please is me. I do what I want to do. No, but when you're converted, this all flips around. Then the priorities get straightened out. We want to do the will of God, we want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in his second letter to the church at Corinth that it was his aim and goal to please him. We have that on our website about the church. That among other things, our desire is to please Christ. This is how you know whether or not you're one who wants to do the will of God. You want to please Jesus. Now I want to just make a comment about the fact that he adds sister there. Notice that? It's actually in the text. His sister and his brothers. See, you got to remember the first century is a time women were downtrodden. They were second-class citizens. This has happened to women throughout history. A lot of cultures women are inferior to men. It's the Christian faith that has lifted women up. They are equal to men. Not inferior. They are equal. And it's Christianity that's done that for women and i just think it's beautiful that jesus puts them in here some of his most faithful followers were women don't forget it was women who were last at the cross and and last at the tomb to see where he was laid to rest it wasn't his disciples his disciples had left and they went into hiding But it was the women who stayed at the tomb to see where he was buried. It was women who came to the tomb on Sunday morning to anoint his body because his burial had been incomplete and they were going to finish the job. It was the women who came. It was to women who first heard the good news he is not here, he is risen. It was to a woman that Jesus first appeared, Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And it was the women who carried the message back to the disciples that he was raised from the dead. Just remember that, the importance of women, the role that they play. So the Lord honors his spiritual sisters, As members of his family, this is the way it is in the Christian faith and in the church. Let me wrap this up with a few closing points. So, out of this, I want to make a few applications. First of all, woe to any person that hurts a member of Jesus' family. Just think of that. He says, these are my brothers and my sister and my mother. Anybody that dares lays a hand on any member of Jesus' family is in great trouble. Remember Saul of Tarsus? And what Jesus said to Saul as he was on his way to Damascus in Syria to persecute Christians? And he had the encounter with the risen Christ Jesus did not appear to him to kill him and send him to hell which he deserved he appeared to him to convert him because he was going to become the great missionary to the Gentile world of the Roman Empire but the question Jesus first asked Saul 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 why are you persecuting me Well, Saul was going after Christians. Well, they're his people. They're his family members. So to go after them was to go after Jesus himself. Saul was in big trouble, and he knew it at that moment. So that's the first thing. Secondly, you know, a person can do all the things that look like Christianity. I go to church, I carry a Bible, I've been baptized, I even put money in the offering, I do all these things, and yet, there could be lacking one thing. There's not that heart to do the will of God. The words of Scripture, there's one thing you lack, like Jesus said to somebody, you lack one thing. You've got all this right, but you're lacking the main thing. This is the main thing. Do I want to do the will of God in my life? Now, here's here's something else to think about. You know, you may not have the love of an earthly family anymore. Your family may all be gone. There's only you left. And maybe your family upbringing wasn't that great. And you may miss the love of a parent. You know, but if you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to a forever family, and you are nearer and dearer to Jesus than angels. Think of this. The Bible indicates this. This is why the church in heaven is right around the throne. The angels are not as close to the Lamb as his people, the 24 elders, which represents the church of all ages, 12 and 12, as we've talked about. You have Jesus' love and care, my friend. He knows you as his brother or his sister, and he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister, according to Hebrews 2.11. 2.11. I love that. He's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Here's an interesting text that goes with that. Psalm 27 and verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Let that be your verse. Psalm 27 verse 10. My father and my mother have forsaken me, But the Lord has taken me in. And then finally, don't let any earthly relationship stand in the way of you becoming a part of Jesus' spiritual family. Sadly, this has happened with people. They're more concerned about how their earthly family looks at them and judges them. And that keeps them from becoming a Christian because they don't want that rejection from their earthly family. I'm saying, don't let those blood tides block the way to you becoming a member of a family of God. This would be a great tragedy in the end. Don't let that happen. Put Your relationship to Jesus has to be the priority. This is what I'm trying to say. Make it the most important thing in your life that you are right with him, that he is your brother in a sense, but he's also your Lord and Savior. And you know, those two brothers of Jesus that I mentioned that wrote New Testament books, James and Judas, they both called him. In their letters, Our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that. This is just something. They were unbelieving to begin with. And they came to see him in in a completely different light after the resurrection. He is now Our Lord Jesus. They give him the full title All those names that gives you the full spectrum. He's the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is God, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you want to be. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.